so we are going to take a break from our Roman series this week. Um, hopefully, Lord willing, Pastor Michael will be back next week. Um, keep the Strickland family in prayer because they had a very hard time getting out of the country. Um, so hopefully they have a, an easier time getting back in it. Um, but he's going to walk us through uh, Romans 9 next week. But this t- 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 oh, English is hard. This morning in our time together, uh, we're going to focus on John 10. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way uh, to the book of John. Um, I'll be there in just a minute. We are going to spend our time together unpacking four verses in the book of John. But first, uh, Blair wanted me to point out a fun fact about me. I have what would be called ROF, Resting Ogre Face. Now, that's the Christian version of it. There's another acronym for it. I can't say it in here. Um, But according to Blair, I'm actually a big teddy bear on the inside. I, I don't see it. But apparently, between the muscles and my face always looking like this, People assume I'm mad. It's just my face, all right? That's one of my common sayings. It's just my face. I'm not mad. It's just my face. But today, my face does look like this because I am, in fact, not very happy. I got to be honest. I hate this day. I dread this day. I despise this day. I have been the student pastor here for almost four years. Uh, July will be four years. And I've learned very quickly that I don't like what this day represents. I know for our graduates, um, it is a season that is a highlight to them. Uh, They are looking forward to it. They are ready to be done with high school. I realize that mine is probably not a popular opinion, but just hear me out for a second, folks. Today means that I am losing some teenagers who have been fixtures in my student ministry. Blair and I love these kids like they are our own. And today marks the beginning of the end with them, with us. We only have a few more months before they get to go on and move into the college and career and see what the world has waiting for them. I'm heartbroken to imagine what our ministry is going to look like without them. It has been my honor and privilege to know each and every one of y'all, to get to know y'all, to learn from y'all, to teach y'all, to love y'all. I can't express how much y'all mean to me. But on a much less personal note, Today also means that we as a church are at risk of losing some teenagers to a world that wants them to believe that the church is outdated, impractical, and unnecessary. Okay, for most, graduation signifies a coming of age, an early entry into adulthood. Unfortunately, I fear it also means a distancing away from God. See, the world makes it so easy for our young adults to put Aside the years of Bible stories, VBS lessons, summer camps, denial weekends, and scriptures that have been stored in their hearts for years. Whether entering college or going into a career, most of our young adults are going into situations where it is simply not popular or common to be a disciple of Jesus. And that's a problem of ethnic proportions. And there is a world out there calling to our young adults that is screaming at the top of their lungs that Jesus is not the answer. See, that church, is full of, that church is just full of simple-minded bigots who only want to oppress freedom for others, for others. We are homophobic because we believe marriage is between a man and a woman. We are oppressive to women because we believe in the sanctity of life. We are transphobic because we believe that God made each person male and female and that God don't make mistakes. We are evil because we believe there is only one way to heaven. And to say someone is going to hell 
it's just wrong and the world will not tolerate it. Do we not see a problem with this? We live in a world where about 70% of our young adults are going into the world and they're not keeping the church with them. That should scare the you-know-what out of us. Too often, the church isn't as appealing as living a self-centered lifestyle. Staying home on Sundays has somehow become self-care, and we have a generation who no longer sees value in the church. The world is taking our, gen our next generation right out from under our noses, and we aren't doing anything to stop it from happening. We're just letting it idly happen. We know it's a problem, but are we doing enough to fix it? I certainly don't think we are as working hard as the world is because the world is working overtime selling them this idealized, sexualized, glamorized picture of adulthood. The world is selling them a life of drugs, alcohol, and sex and slapping a false label on it and calling it freedom. That a life like that is fun, wild, and well-deserved. The world tells them that that is the abundant life. That is the good life. You don't believe me, then you're just kidding yourself. Just go on Snapchat, and for some of you older folks, that's a, a, an app. And for guys like my dad, an app is something you can download on your phone that doesn't look like a jitterbug, okay? Um, but Snapchat, and look at the news articles that are shoved down their throats each and every day, and understand that they can't pick and choose what they see. The, the app chooses what they view, okay? So here's a few of the headlines that you'll find. Gender norms, never heard of them. Okay, I have. Bachelorette party gone wild. His addiction started at 14, so it's selling him sex, drugs, and partying. Snapchat is the number six most downloaded app on the iPhone, and its primary target is teenagers and young adults. And understand, again, there's no way to control what is filtered through. The world is selling our young, and, young men and women a life that will only lead further and further away from Jesus Christ. And they are eating it up and leaving the church in droves. Please know that I am brutally honest about this problem the church is facing today because I unfortunately am all too familiar with the allure of the outside world. I am fully transparent with our teenagers about the temptations that lead our kids who grew up in church out of the same doors. I am so incredibly passionate about my role as student pastor here because I fell into the same pattern I try to warn our students about when young adults leave the church in their late teens or early 20s, there's about three things that are going to happen later on. One, they will leave, and then at best, they're going to be a cultural Christian who views the random church appearance as like this family obligation or as a holiday tradition. Mm -hmm. They will no longer have access to fellowship, discipleship, accountability, mentoring, all of the things a church provides for its members. They will continue to fall further away from their Christian roots. Or two, they'll be shocked back into returning when life kicks them straight dead in the teeth. That's what happened to us. They will struggle, face hardships, and be brought to their knees in search of way to get out of their mess that they are in. Church will be a place they return to for help and answers and access to God. Or three, they will have children of their own and finally see a need to be back in church. Regardless of which path they choose, the church cannot afford to be comfortable with losing a generation for either a season or a lifetime. Our young adults cannot afford to go out on their own living for themselves instead of the Lord. As parents, as grandparents, loved ones, mentors, we have all helped mold and teach these young adults. We cannot afford to sit silently and allow our children to be making life-altering mistakes without putting up a fight. Amen. It is our responsibility to remind them 
without ceasing that the world is just full of lies. That the world's abundant life is a trap. That it is okay to choose to not learn about the world the hard way. That through God, there is a better way. There is an abundant life out there for y'all. There is an abundant life out there for you and for me. It's not found in the world, though. It's found in the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And Christ talks about this in the Gospel of John. And I love the Gospel of John. If you don't know who wrote the Gospel of John, well, John wrote the Gospel of John. <laughs> I about jumped. And, and, and John gives us a bunch of unique information that, are found, that aren't found in other Gospels. Who, you know, John, in the book of John, likes to point out that he is the apostle that Jesus loved. John also makes sure to mention that he outran the other disciples when running to the empty tomb. So, but also in this gospel, we also get seven I am statements from Jesus. And I always find it interesting and, and a little humorous that there are people out there that says Jesus never said he was God. Like, really? Did he really say that or did you just not read? Because there are, these I am statements are metaphors telling us that Jesus is God. You have, I am the bread of life in John 6. I am the light of the world in John 8. I am the door of the sheep, John 10, which is what we'll be focusing on today. I am the good shepherd, also in John 10. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14. And I am the true vine in John 15. If those chapters and those verses don't make it abundantly clear who Jesus is, then you're just kidding yourself. You have a hardness of heart that is keeping you from seeing who Jesus really is. I'd encourage you, about two years ago, Pastor Micah did a series on the I Am statements of Jesus, and I, I would go back and listen to them. Now, while we are going to touch upon what Christ means when he says, I am the door, I'm going to spend the majority of our time unpacking what it really means to have life abundantly. Because for a lot of us, we have the wrong perception of what the abundant life is. It's not the American dream, right? The idea of a marriage, house, two kids, white picket fence, that's it's nice, has nothing to do with scripture, but it's nice. That's not what Jesus promises us. We're going to see what Jesus promises in him. But let us go ahead and read these four verses. If you're able and willing, go ahead and stand with me as we read John 10, 7 through 10. And these are the words of Christ. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only come, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. Lord, I just thank you for what this day represents that we have four young people moving on to the next stage of their life, Lord, and that they will stay rooted in you and see that the abundant life is found in you and in nothing else. Be with us, Lord. Holy Spirit, be with us. May we have eyes to, to see, a heart to, to listen, ears to listen, Lord, and a heart that's uh, receptive to you. We love you, Lord. We need you. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So anytime you see the words, truly, truly, you know Jesus is about to drop a big old fat truth bomb that is going to rattle some of the people in that time's period and what they believe. See, not all roads lead to heaven. 
All right, that's what Jesus is saying here. There is only one way to heaven. That is the first truth. Jesus is the only way to eternal life, people. There are going to be a lot of doors open to you in life. But only one leads to eternal life with the Father, and that door is Jesus. If you are a Christian, all the doors in your life are just opportunities to lead people to the only door that matters. All right, if you are a Christian, all the other doors in your life are opportunities to lead people to the only door that matters. Our lives are full of doors. It's like the game shows, right? You're going to pick behind door number one, door number two, or door number three. It's just decisions, right? We face all kinds of decisions each and every day. What are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? You know, minor things. But there's also bigger decisions. Our seniors are moving on to college and careers. What college are they going to attend? What job do they want? Who are they going to marry? Is he or she the one, 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 one? There's no such thing as the one, by the way. The one is the one you say I do to. Just, that's a whole other sermon. Anywho, how many kids you want? Lots of decisions will be made, and God will guide you and give you peace about each and every one of them, if you let him. But the most important decision you will face has to do with your salvation. Buddha never claimed to be God. Muhammad never claimed to be Allah. Yet Jesus Christ claimed to be the true and living God. Buddha simply said, I am a teacher in search of truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Confucius said, I never claimed to be holy. Jesus said, who convicts me of sin? Muhammad said, unless God throws his cloak of mercy over me, I have no hope. Jesus said, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. Jesus is the only way to heaven. This is the most offensive thing about Christianity. The world talks a whole bunch about speaking your truth, and truth is relative, and just because it's your truth doesn't mean it's my truth. <laughs> Truth is not relative. Truth is Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. See, A.W. Tozer said it like this. The vague and tenacious hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciousness of millions. See, don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie. You cannot get to heaven any other way. And let me break down a few things for you. Saying a prayer and being baptized is not the end game for Christianity. All right, it is the beginning of life. Once you walk through the door, you can live a life that is now pleasing to God. Casual, nominal Christianity is a false gospel, and it'll send you to hell just as quickly as any other false gospel. The idea that I said a prayer, I was baptized when I was like a teenager at youth camp. I no longer have to worry about going to hell, so I can just do what I want. See, you show me that in the Bible. You show me, like, you show me who had that kind of faith. In the Bible, they believed in God so much that they were outside the body of Christ, the church. That they believed in God so much that they weren't sincerely praying in days, months, or years. They believed in God so much that they haven't read their Bible in Lord knows how long. Show me that in Scripture. Because that's nominal, casual, Americanized Christianity. See, R.C. Sproul put it this way here then, is the real problem of our negligence. We fail in our duty to study God's word, not so much because it is difficult to understand, not so much because it is dull or boring, but because it is work. Our problem is not a lack of intelligence or a lack of passion. Our problem is we're lazy. We have an entire book of the Bible that talks about your works revealing your faith, the book of James. And I really appreciate the book of James because he is... Straight to the point. You ask him a question, he gives you an answer. All right? And I don't know if you realize this, but James is the brother of 
Jesus, James's brother Jesus. And Jesus always answered a question with a question. You couldn't get a straight answer from the guy, right? So you know that would be the reason that Jesus or James had to uh, answer a question just so straightforward it's because Jesus would never answer it, so he just got tired of it. But I believe that James is the reason a lot of people came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. I have two brothers. You know what it would take for me to say that they are the Son of God? A death, burial, resurrection, and an ascension to the right hand of the Father would be a good start. All right? But James loves to talk about works. That we, who are in Christ, do works that reveal our faith. Not that they give us salvation, but that our works reveal we have salvation. It talks about being doers of God's word, of God's word. How can you be a doer if you are sitting on the couch and watching the football game instead of being in the house of the Lord? How can you be a doer when you spend more time at a ball field than doing the Lord's work? A faith without works is dead. Don't be dead. Jesus paid a tremendous price for us so we could have abundant life. He willingly took all of our sin on himself and gave his life on the cross so we could be forgiven and have new life in him. So trust him for your eternal life. Our second truth is this. We have an enemy when we are following Jesus. We have an enemy, and he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. The Bible uses the word um, thief. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. A thief is quiet, sneaky, conniving, and he comes when you are least prepared. Peter uses the imagery of a roaring lion in 1 Peter. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. See, there is an enemy in this world, church, whose goal is to steal, kill, and destroy, and he wants to destroy the church. He wants to destroy the work of God in your life, and he wants to destroy you and your family, period. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Screw Tape Letters, said that Christians make two primary mistakes in regard to Satan. Some people give him too much credit. Every flat tire is caused by a demon. Any sin in their life, that's Satan. Satan got me fired. No, he didn't, Scooter. That was you coming to work late ten days in a row. But that's, that's one mistake. On the other side, and perhaps even more problematic, are those who don't even recognize him at all. My son just made some bad choices and got in with wrong friends. Don't we see how Satan could be at work there? In some temptation you are dealing with, something your family is going through, something plaguing our church, isn't this what Peter is telling us? In the book of Job, Satan is the one that causes Job's financial issues, his family strife. He makes weather problems, health problems. Some of these things you're dealing with are, in fact, from Satan. Satan is described as being the prince of the power of the air. He's everywhere. And church, don't we see him roaring today? We have problems plaguing our society. We have problems plaguing our church. Things I described early in the sermon. In the world, in an average month, over 300 Christians are killed for following Jesus. Today, over 200 churches get destroyed by vandalism every week. Over 800 Christians will be beaten, tortured, and imprisoned due to their faith in places like Iran, Iraq, Somalia, Sudan, Libya, Yemen, China, North Korea, Morocco, even places like Malaysia. We shouldn't forget about our brothers and sisters over there, but we should also realize that Satan has his own plans for the church in the West as well. And I can see him at work and how much he's attacked marriages and families in this season. Make no mistake about it. He wants your complete destruction. He is coming for you. 
And I tell this to the youth all the time. Y'all probably get tired of hearing it. I don't care. I'm going to keep doing it. Lions typically go after the gazelle that isn't within the pack. That the lion goes after the weak one, the one not paying attention. Once you weren't paying attention, that's when the lion pounces. That's why Paul ends his letter uh, to the church of Corinth by be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Because Satan would love nothing more than for us to stop praying, to stop reading, to stop doing the kingdom work. We often get the perception that people who no longer attend church have easier lives than people who do. Right? Instead of being fed the word of God on Sunday, they're at the beach or at a game or having family time. They aren't waking up and trying to get ready for church. And you know Satan's at play every Sunday morning because getting to church is a big issue, right? See, Blair showed me a picture on Facebook the other day that said, whoever said easy like Sunday morning clearly was not a churchgoer, all right? But in the grand scheme of things, isn't that kind of the point? Wouldn't Satan make it easier not to go to church, to not be in the body, to not be doing the kingdom work? I've heard people say dumb things like, I'd rather be fishing and thinking about God than sitting in a church pew thinking about fishing. Okay. Listen here. If you don't delight being in worship with a group of believers, you're going to really hate heaven. All right? Because heaven is all about being in the presence of a perfect God, worshiping him for the rest of eternity. I don't really know how much hunting and fishing is going to be going on. Personally, I hope a little bit, but I doubt it. Our, we are going to get to be in the very presence of God for all eternity. That's what heaven is. And if that doesn't sound good to you, I'm praying for you, Scooter. Do not let the enemy still kill and destroy your relationship with God and storing treasures in heaven. I'm trying to hurry. This brings me to my third and final truth. Christ offers us the abundant life. Christ said he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. Look at that word life. There are basically two ways of viewing the word in the Greek. One is bios, where you get the word biology. The other is zoe, which is connected to our relationship with God. It is a unique type of spiritual life that only comes from our relationship with God. Okay, so when Christ said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly, he is speaking in terms of both bios and zoe. In a sense, he is saying, I have come that you might be, uh, be heartbeats that are heaven bound. Okay, indeed, Christ came to give this kind of life to each and every one of us. Abundant life may not mean what you think it means, though. Okay, like the great philosopher Inigo Montoya. And if you don't know who that is, shame on you. If you don't know who that is, when you get home, you are to watch The Princess Bride and be blessed. But Anigo Montoya and The Princess Bride says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. See, life is a rich, rich term for John, who uses it to reference to Jesus at least 25 times. Life is the beginning and the end of John's concerns. It is the first and last thing he writes about in his gospel. Jesus, who is John's logos, is the source of all life in the universe. The ultimate purpose of John's account of the gospel is that people believe in Jesus and that believing you may have life in his name, according to John 20, 31. For John, 
Life in Christ means living in fellowship with him and that the one who sent him. Though he occasionally refers to eternal life principally, John is concerned that believers live ethical lives. When Jesus declares that he came, that we might have life and have it abundantly, he could not have meant for that he intends to make life comfortable and plushy for all of us. Okay? Surely Jesus meant that he came to offer life amid the harshness and the cruelty of this life as sometimes we experience. The abundant life is not a life that guarantees perpetual health or constant comfort or big fat bank accounts. C.S. Lewis knew that the abundant life did not equate with a comfortable life because he said, the Christian religion does not begin in comfort. It begins in dismay. In religion, as in war and everything else, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth. Only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. Having this promised abundant life is to be in such close relationship with living with the living Christ that whatever reality we face, we are determined to walk the way of Jesus, to be obedient to Jesus in walking the way of love. The abundant life is not having more. But as the first Christians learned in Acts 2, sometimes it's making do with what you have so you have access to give to others. It means to limit how much we acquire for ourselves so that we can be more abundant in our mercy to others. The abundant life is built on generosity of heart and joy and seeing new life spring up where there appeared to only be death. When the world thinks of abundance, it usually thinks in more concrete terms. It normally thinks wealth, money. There's a popular false gospel that thinks this way, the prosperity gospel, that in Christ you have, you get health, wealth, and happiness. That is why Jesus died on the cross, so you could have those things. I actually heard one of these prosperity preachers say that Jesus would have his own private jet because he rode on a donkey. That's some messed up theology. Jesus did not die so that we could have our best life now. Okay? Jesus died so that we could have eternal life with God the Father and not face the wrath of God that we all deserve because we are black-hearted, wretched sinners that disobey a perfect and holy God. Thank you. In his book, The Holiness of God, R.C. Sproul put it this way. He said, sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin of the most minute piccadillo? What are we saying to our creator when we disobey him at the slightest point? We are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, your law was not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want and not what you command me to do. The abundant life cannot be found in a life full of sin. The will of God is for us to grow in sanctification according to 1 Thessalonians, to become more and more and more and more like Jesus. That's the abundant life. We aren't called into the good life. We look at the disciples in the Bible, and I don't think we could call it good. 
they all died horrific deaths. We wouldn't call it an easy life because it wasn't easy. But they lived a life of abundance. They lived a life worthy of the gospel. They lived lives to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the abundant life. May we all strive to hear those words. And if you don't know Jesus, well, may you come to know him today. You have the opportunity to have the abundant life. You will not find that kind of life in any false gospel or anything in the world. You will not find it in the Americanized, casual, nominal Christianity, but you will find it by having a real, genuine relationship with the creator of all things. The Bible says there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. God loved, so God gave. If you believe, then you receive eternal life. Go ahead and stand with me as we go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, today is a day to pray for so many things. First and foremost, I pray, dear Lord, that everyone here today will choose or has chosen to have eternal life through you. I pray that God has been able to use these words today to remind us of your goodness, your mercy, your grace. I pray that we all will continue to submit to, submit to your will and direction, Lord. Lord, I also pray that today and tomorrow afford us all the opportunity to reflect on the sacrifices made by so many men and women when they gave their lives to protect ours. May we all remember to thank you, Lord, that we live in a country that is protected by the best military forces in the entire world. And lastly, I pray for Destiny and Braden and Landon and Tristan and all the other young men and women graduating from high school and entering adulthood. Lord, I just... I pray that they will cling to your words, that they will follow your path, that they will serve for your kingdom. Lord, strengthen these young adults and allow them to live boldly and unashamedly for you. And Lord, while you're at it, please allow us to do the same. For those of us who have been distracted by the world's messaging, Lord, lead us back to you. Allow us to fully rely on you and trust that your way is true and right. Direct us away from the world's distractions so that we may focus on you. Lord, bring Lord, bring our church together. Lord, bring our church together for protection and to prevent our young adults from going astray. Give us the words and the way to hold them accountable and focus on them. Lord, I pray for this generation and for all that they will do in and through your church. Lord, we love you. Lord, we need you, and we praise you above all things because you are above all things. Be with us in this time. Amen.